We're glad to see you back here, and let me pray for our night, and then we will dive in with a couple details and then get into the material proper for tonight. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we declare you as King and Lord, and we value your authority. We value your purpose. Lord, we want to understand your heart, and we thank you for the chance to talk through and dialogue through these paradigms, Lord, to understand your heart for all people, God, to see what you say in your word and to see, Lord, how to dialogue and how to discuss this. And so, God, we pray that you would be glorified tonight, that we would be able to fix our eyes on who you are and how you view us, Lord, that we would understand how precious the work of your son, Jesus Christ, is and that, Lord, that would frame how we treat all people in all places. And so, God, we pray for our discussions. We pray for Pastor Lance, Lord, as your spirit speaks through him, Lord, and walks us through your revealed word. And God, may you be honored and glorified in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Well, we want to welcome you to part two of Bridgeway Christian Church's Faith and Culture series. And we believe that our first week started off on the right foundation. And like we said week one, we believe that this is worth our time. This is worth your time, and this is honoring to our Lord and Savior, and that's what we want to do the whole way through. We talked about how Bridgeway desires these conversations to happen with courage and humility and prayerfulness and convicted civility, and we're asking constantly how we can learn and grow and live intentionally with an informed and convicted civility as we talk through these subjects. And it always begins with individuals with transformed hearts and powerful vision. And so we're partnering with the Lord to both learn and to act. And so to just quickly review everything we talked about last week, in week one, Pastor Lance came in and set us up with a landscape that we're very aware of, but we're unfamiliar with. And so we desired wisdom and God's perspective on this. And Pastor Lance walked us through new paradigms to kind of walk into where we took time to define the terms that make up all these discussions to go through a brief look at the historical and the modern survey of the history of same-sex attraction and to look at the percentage versus the perception that's actually out there. Pastor Lance walked us through where same-sex attraction comes from. And if you remember, we've talked through the six categories of the continuum that he presented. We talked about what current science is saying and even what it's not saying. And we talked about things like genes and hormones and genetics, epigenetics and the psychological world and what they say. We talked a little bit about the malleability scale and what that means for these type of conversations. And then Pastor Lance invited our guest, Reverend Char Blair, to come up and talk about this from her experience and from her heart. And so we had a chance to kind of have the right foundation set for us. And if you didn't get the email, we sent up a follow-up resource email that also laid out what we're going through over the following weeks, how tonight we're going to be walking through the biblical, and then next week we're going to be focusing specifically on gender identity and sexual identity, and then the fourth week we're going to talk about what are we doing with these things? What are we supposed to do when it comes into our lives, into our families, into our schools, into our church? How do we manage that? How do we minister and so we're going to be talking about the more practical pieces on those final weeks. And so we encourage you again to listen deeply and to not block out anything that's being said too prematurely. Let Lance share his full heart on the matter. Let these things come out as we learn together. And so with all that being said, um, I would like to introduce 
Pastor Lance Hahn to come out and teach us through week two of the Faith and Culture series. All right, how wonderful to see you. Let's, let's dive right in. We got a lot to cover, so we'll just hit the ground running. God matters most, yes? Therefore, the thing that matters most is determining God's will in this matter. Our creator gets to determine our purpose, our meaning, our value. He made us, therefore, he is our authority in all matters. He's the source of all wisdom. He knows best, and thankfully, he's trustworthy and he's good. Amen? Amen. We're going to be looking through a biblical worldview lens today that I laid out for you last time, uh, some paradigm shifts that have occurred uh, in our culture that has re helped us redefine some things, not always for the best. So what we're going to do is talk about what foundation we're operating off of in light of those. So let me just go through a list with you. The first one is instead of relativism, we believe in absolute truth. In other words, God's reality that truth can be found, it's just difficult. Number two, instead of post-Christendom, we are currently Christians. We are shaped by a biblical worldview and Judeo-Christian values are our norm. Number three, instead of radical individualism, we believe in God-centered community which means that the grand story is about God, not us. We are merely part of his story. In him, we find our true selves and living interdependent with others, we find the healthiest and most whole life apart from heaven. Number four, instead of a sexual revolution, we believe in sexual wholeness. It's not so much pursuing what feels good, but what is good. The distortion of God-given sexuality creates havoc in our lives, so we seek to be restored to his sexual ideal. And number five, there may be a shifting normal in society, but we believe in anchored discovery, that we're still learning about God, we're still learning about our world, we're still learning about each other, but we have an anchored view of some things we know for sure, and the rest we're able to discover from a place of stability and safety. Now, here is the heart of what we want to launch into, and that is the grand picture of design, fall, and redemption. God designed the universe with precision. Although we are created beings, we are not gods. We were made with an intricate brilliance. The beautiful order was distorted radically with the invasion of sin and death through the fall of mankind. That's the Adam and Eve story, thus rendering what we see now around us and within us as broken, a distorted memory of the original intention. But thankfully, there is a beautiful redemption, right? I mean, that is the heart of what we are preaching and teaching here, that we are not just left to the fall, that we are not just plunging into chaos and that's the end of it, but that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, came and began to set things right, yeah? He works from the inside out. The heart is of utmost importance. Now, it is my theological view that there are some things that will not be ultimately set right until his return. That's my view. In the meantime, however, there are significant areas, social, spiritual, emotional, things like that, that he has remade, which we call salvation. And there's things that he is renewing that we call sanctification. 
Relative wholeness is possible. And we're gonna talk about what that means. But this is why Jesus came. It's why the Holy Spirit is here. He's fixing brokenness. And I need you to hear me on this one because you're gonna hear the phrase a lot. To hear that we are broken is not the end of the story. It's the beginning of the story. Everything glorious and great comes after the phrase, I'm broken. That's the good stuff. So if you hear broken and you hear condemnation, I think you missed it. You see, brokenness is why Jesus is here. It's the best part of the story. One final warning before we move on. Our examination today will be a distorted one. Why? Because we're only going to address one issue. When you're trying to address one issue, you're not getting the full balance of God's interaction with humanity. You're not getting to see all of his love and redemption and fun and adventure. We're zeroing in on one topic, and whenever you do that, it only gives you a little tiny view of our marvelous God. You have to understand the Bible is full of his love, full of his care, full of his renewing, right? You got a million pounds of love and good news. But we're gonna zero in on one element and that makes it very nitpicky. And unfortunately in that, we're not always gonna see the full heart of God. So we're gonna do our best, but I know there is a limitation. All right, so let's do a biblical examination of the issues surrounding LGBTQ. And I wanna start with the authority of scripture. Scripture must take the primary role of the foundation of truth, why? because experience is individual. What we need is something concrete. We need something that is written down that multiple sources can examine and argue about to arrive at what did God mean. If I tell you that God told me that he thought that I was just fine, and he told you I wasn't fine, who's going to win? But if we can look at the Bible, if we can look at something that is outside of ourselves and assess what does God say we are, what is God saying has happened with us, what does God say that he's doing with us, we can all begin to discuss and we have something a bit more firm. So therefore, Scripture must take the primary role of foundation for truth. But here's the problem with any conversation of truth with a capital T. Unfortunately, people confuse theology with pastoring. Discovering the truth is only half of the battle. Loving people properly through that truth is the other half. What we must not do is simply arrive at truth and move forward. Ah, that's not what we're called to do. We gotta go the whole way. And that means how do we live the truth just like Jesus would? Amen? All right. Now, people are involved. We need to never forget that. Now, there are three big, big biblical ideas regarding homosexuality. Uh, surprisingly, there are only eight relatively clear passages discussing or referring directly to any form of homosexuality. I'm going to give you the three, and then we'll go back through them one by one, all right? So the three are this. Number one, the extreme wickedness stories that you're probably familiar with. Number two, the rules and regulations of the Levitical law. Number three, the depravity of man passages. We're gonna take each one slowly, one at a time. And when I say slowly, I mean possibly to the point of boredom. 
We're going number one. Let's talk about the extreme wickedness stories. And what I'm referring to is Sodom and Gomorrah and the Levite and the concubine. Um, much has been said about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Unfortunately, very little has been fully accurate and very little has been helpful. Uh, usually, this is a story used to justify hatred, right? Justify hatred, justify abuse towards the LGBTQ community. Uh, as a lifelong Christian, lover of God, lover of people, an expert in biblical studies, this breaks my heart. This is a travesty. How dare you try to take scripture with a little tiny view and use it to hurt someone else? That's unacceptable. Hope today will clear a few things up, allow scripture to speak as it was intended. Let's dig into it. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's recap the start of the story. God comes to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, and he comes with two big, bad, good-looking angel guys. They're walking along with him kind of like bodyguards. Of course, he doesn't need any bodyguards. And he comes up to Abraham and he says, hey, remember that town where your nephew Lot went? Remember down there in the Fertile Valley, the best place? Remember Sodom? Remember that it's a part of five cities, Sodom and Gomorrah and three other ones? You remember that, right? He's like, well, of course, that's where my nephew lives right now. Yeah, so they're so messed up that people have been crying out to me as God for justice. So I got my two buddies right here, and they're going to go down and see what's really going on. And if it's as bad as everybody says it is, well, they're going to do something about it, and we're going to bring some correction. At that point, of course, Abraham panics. Someone he loves is there. So he starts a bargaining thing with God, right? You all know the story where he's like, wait, 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 if there's like 50 righteous people, you're not gonna destroy it, right? Like if there's, okay, 40 and then the 30, and he keeps going on and on. Finally, he whittles it down to 10. If there are 10 righteous people in the city, you're gonna let it go, right? And God goes, you bet, buddy. At that point, God disappears from the story. Two angels head on down to see what's going on. As they approach the town, there is a man waiting at the gate. It happens to be Lot. Lot's waiting at the city gate. Now, at the city gate usually is where the wealthy people hung out and the leaders hung out. And so Lot was hanging out there and he sees these two guys come in and he's like, oh shoot, this isn't going to go well, <laughs> right? Because who's comes walking up, right? You got, you know, Chris Hemsworth and David Beckham. You understand what I'm saying? So you got these these, these men come walking up, and he's like, oh, no. He's like, hey, guys, what's up? How are you? Right? And they oh, well, we're here to stay the night. And he's like, that's fantastic. Now, here's what I'm going to suggest to you. You might want to hang with me. They're like, well, why is that? Well, it's not safe here. You know, you could have asked the question, then why do you live here? But they didn't. And so they said, all right, well, that's very nice of you. So they go in, and they hang out with him, and they're going to stay the night at his place. And that's where we pick up the story. Genesis 19, verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Very important word there, to know them. That's in a biblical sense. Usually in a biblical sense, when someone knows someone else, a baby shows up. Verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Same word. 
Let me bring them out to you and you can do to them as you please, winning father of the year. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow, he came here as a foreigner. He has now become our judge. Now we will deal with you, Lot, worse than with them. And they pressed hard against the man, Lot. They drew near to break the door down, but the men reached out their hands, that's the angels, brought Lot into the house of them and slammed the door shut. At that point, they then strike them with blindness as they're groping around trying to figure out what's going on, which intriguingly enough, they don't give up when they're blind. That's commitment. He then, they grab him and they said, hey, we got to get out of here. And when they get out of here, they're like, anyone you want to bring with you? And he has two daughters, right? They're going to come out and then Lot's wife. As they head on out, they said, we don't want you looking back. Lot's wife looked back as what we know as fire and brimstone, right? The sulfur, it comes raining down and it absolutely wipes out the city. Uh, Mom doesn't make it. Uh, She turns into a a giant horse salt lick, and they move on. All right. A couple key points I want to highlight here is that it says all the men, young and old, show up. I have had pizza parties, and not everyone shows up. Uh, there was a lot of motivation here. Everybody shows up. And I want you to remember that this place got destroyed after a bargain with Abraham that he would not destroy it if how many... 10 righteous people were in the city. We just pulled out, allegedly, we find out in the New Testament, one of them, Lot, was considered righteous, which is troubling to my spirit. But we realized that we got at least three out. Mom should have got out, but really that's four. So we didn't have six other people in the entire city in order to save this place. All right, that's significant. Um, Everyone knew it was wicked. Lot called it out, and he's like, don't do such a wicked thing. Uh, The mob wanted to know the guys. That's a sexual reference very, very clearly. And then the daughters were offered, but the females were refused. They wanted the guys. All right. There is a similar story in Judges 19, 22 through chapter 20, verse 48, called the Levite and the concubine. It is a very similar story to Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, you would say, well, why do they have two versions? Uh, Because the Jews thought that Sodom and Gomorrah was the worst story ever. And they would always comment that it was non-Jews that did it. And so the Bible wanted to remind them, uh, no, you guys have your own version. So this is the Jewish version of a similar story. All right? And basically, here's the story. Uh, In Israel... There was a Levite, a priestly helper. He's supposed to be the good guy. He had a concubine, which meant it wasn't his wife, but that she was super important to him. She treated her kind of like as a wife, but he was kind of a psychopath. So she ran away, ran to her dad. He goes and he gets her back. And they're traveling back home and they need to stay somewhere for the night. So they go into a city called Gibeah, a Levite, uh, excuse me, a uh, an Israelite town. And they come upon an old man. He looks them over, it's late at night, and he says, you don't wanna be staying out here in the city square. They were sitting there waiting for someone to give them hospitality. There was no such thing as hotels in this town. So they had to wait for someone to pick them up. He said, not safe for you guys, you might wanna come with me. They said, well, that's super nice. 
They go into his house as they sit down to eat. All the men of the city surround the house. They beat on the door. They demand he hand over the visiting man for sex. They wouldn't take no for an answer. The old man offered his daughter again and offered the concubine. They said, no, we want the guys. Uh, the Levite forces his concubine out, slams the door behind her. She is raped all night long and is dead on the doorstep in the morning. Uh, he then, in anger and frustration, cuts her body into 12 pieces and mails them out to the 12 tribes of Israel for revenge. All right. Neither of these stories should be read to your children prior to bedtime. These are pretty rough. What do we do with these stories? Are they about God's hatred of homosexuality like we've been taught? I'm on the Nile River. I went over on a missions trip to Uganda. And I'm on the Nile River, coolest thing in the world, doing whitewater rafting. And the rafting guy's name is Juma. So we're all sitting on this raft and it was a calm part of the rafting trip. And, and uh, I was trying to figure out a way to kind of um, talk about the Lord, but thankfully the ladies in my raft took the lead and they got a conversation started about Jesus. And I thought, well, the only thing I can have to offer here is let's do like a question and answer time, right? So I said, uh, hey, well, I'll, I'll give you money if you can stump me on a Bible question. <laughs> and uh, he did, by the way. Uh, he, he asked me where a certain city was located and nobody knows the city location, so he won. But anyway, I still gave him the cash. But one of the first things he brought up is he said, so tell me about Sodom and Gomorrah. First thing he pops out of his mouth, he said, is it okay to go and murder people like we do here? That we got people that because of this story, you can go out and murder anyone that's LGBTQ. Is that what your God says? Interesting, I'm over in another country and that's the one thing we wanna talk about is this story and how it justifies murder. That is not what it says. And that kind of stuff makes me very angry. Ah, so what do we do with it? Let's look at the biblical commentary on Sodom and Gomorrah. It is not like the Bible doesn't comment on it. As a matter of fact, Sodom and Gomorrah is referred to in seven other passages in the Bible. Now, what's interesting is two of them focus on the distorted sexual aspect of the story. If you only focus on those, the punishment and destruction seems directly related to something sexually deviant, right? So let's take a look at those. Let's take a look at the first one, 2 Peter 2, 6 through 20. I'll just put it up here on the screens for you. The first one, 2 Peter 2, 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he, meaning God, condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So it shows that there is a judgment. Verse seven, and if he rescued righteous Lot, that's where we debate, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds, that he saw and that he heard. Verse nine, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Now you read that and you go, whoa, that's, that's, 
pretty hardcore. That's, that's pretty clear. Now, if you realize the rest of it, you can't simply take a passage out of context. You got to read it in context. The rest of the passage talks about the men that he is referring to are blaspheming angels and demons. They're like, what does that have to do with it? Exactly. They're talking about living unstable lives. The lust of defiling passion, the sensual conduct is actually a bit more complicated than it appears. It's about out-of-control behavior, not specifically this type of sexuality. Does it refer to it? Yeah. Let's look at the next passage. Number two, Jude 6 through 7. Jude 6 through 7, and the angels who did not stay within their own positions of authority, we're talking about pre-flood days, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Okay, clear reference to sexual immorality, clear reference to an unnatural desire, a perversion of sexuality in some way. No one is debating that. So, after reading those two passages, which everyone wants to read, it's clear, right? Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed for out-of-control homosexual behavior, yes? Ah, no. No, it wasn't. You go, come on, pastor, seriously? What did you just read? Well, according to the rule of biblical hermeneutics, you allow the clearer passages to, what, clarify the more obscure passages. Is there any passages clearer? Yes, there is. As a matter of fact, the other five passages that talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, remember there's two that talk about that, the other five do not mention sexuality at all. What do they mention? Let's go into Ezekiel 16, 46 through 51. It's talking about Israel here. God is speaking to unfaithful Israel, and it says, uh, you are similar to Sodom with her daughters. Pick it up in verse 47. Not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, within a very little time you were more corrupt than they were in all your ways, meaning Israel was worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. As I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done, meaning you did worse. Here we go, verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. It's going to lay out exactly why they were destroyed. Ready? She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and arrogant and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Samaria has not committed half your sins. You have committed more abominations than they and have made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations you've committed. Sounds like it just described our neighborhood. Isaiah 3, 8 and 9, speaking of the injustice and terrible treatment of people, God condemns with these words. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against Yahweh, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bear witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom and do not hide it. So what's the problem? The arrogance. Jeremiah 23, 14, speaking of general sin and arrogance about it, God says, but in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. 
They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. You see, the other two references that come up is how it's gonna be easier for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than the cities in which Jesus did most of his miracles. Matthew 10, 15, Matthew eleven twenty three. 23. What's worse than what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah? Rejecting Jesus Christ. Hmm. So I wanna tell you my estimation of the read of these stories. As you can tell, it is certainly not what you've been taught historically, especially if you were not listening under the teaching that I've done on it, because this has been very clear to me for a long time. But here's the deal. Sodom and Gomorrah, just like the city of Gibeah in the Levite and concubine story, were out of control. They rejected God fully. They were completely ruled by their own arrogant selfishness. They pursued any and every passion they wanted to without restraint. The homosexual gang rape attempt was merely one symptom of their wickedness. Were all their behaviors wrong? Yes. Did God destroy them for homosexuality? No, he destroyed them because they were wholly wicked and as a warning to other cities who would follow the same pattern. That's why. The second major biblical view, we start with the, what, the extreme wickedness stories? Number two, rules and regulations of the Levitical law. This is something else that is commonly commented on. I'm sure you've heard of these passages, right? This is where we connect in the word homosexuality with abomination. That used to get thrown around a lot back in history. People don't tend to use that very often anymore. But it comes from Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13. I'm just going to read these. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. That means sex, by the way. Leviticus 20, 13, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Once again, on face value, you go, pretty easy, huh? We just can close up our Bibles and move on. That is incorrect. Why? Because you are in the Levitical law. The Levitical law is specific to Israel and their unique covenant with God. It was not always a list of what God liked or didn't like per se. It was a series of codes that marked out Israel as different, unusual, distinct. It was not demanded of any other nation, nor did it carry over to Jesus' ministry, nor to the apostles to the Gentiles. Even circumcision didn't carry over, nor even the Sabbath carry over. Levitical laws are primarily theoretical laws to make a spiritual point. The law themselves are not always the particular issue. How do we know that? Because if you examine the clean, unclean laws, it would suggest that God likes cows better than pigs, which we all know is not true, right? Pigs are welcome to the altar just as much. It also says in the Levitical law that handicapped people are not allowed in the temple of God. Is that really God's heart? Or is that trying to make a theoretical point of something spiritual? It also refers to that anytime there's menstruation, you have to go outside the camp. What, what is my point? My point is simply this, is that you don't get to pick and choose the ones you wanna keep. If you take it for face value, which unfortunately a lot of people are doing, you either have to take the whole Levitical law and Mosaic law for that matter, or not at all. You don't get to pick and choose the parts that make sense to you. Now, let me also say this. 
Discerning God's heart in the Levitical law is difficult, but it's not impossible. You can still discern God's heart, but it just takes more work, research, and study. You can do it, but you can't just simply read through it and think we already know what they're talking about. I also want to debunk a myth here. The whole idea about the abomination list. Everything is, oh, homosexuality is an abomination, and it just keeps getting said over and over. There's a lot of things that were called abominations. There was a death penalty for disobeying parents in the Old Testament. We don't seem to highlight that one, although most parents think we should. <laughs> but Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, tells you very clearly what are abominations to God if you want a list. Here we go. Pride, lying, hands that shed innocent blood, a wicked heart, feet quick to run to evil, lying, and a divisive brother. If we want to talk about abominations, I think we have an awful lot of them all over our church. And it's usually us. Ah. We'll go to the third section. The depravity of man passages. There are three passages that refer to homosexuality in light of the depravity of man or symptoms of a sinful world and bad choices. Two are lists, one's an explanation. Let's go through them rather quickly. The two lists of unrighteous behaviors are found in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1. Let's go through them one at a time. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, of course, for our purposes, we're zeroing in on one in that list, which is what? Men who practice homosexuality, we're going to talk about that primarily but don't forget the rest of the list, right? It's so funny how we tend to highlight certain things. Intriguing. We usually highlight stuff for other people and we avoid the ones that are about us. Pick up 1 Timothy 1.8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Did you see the rest of the list? How about we take a look at all those a little closer? So here's the deal. We don't excuse everything, but we just need to realize there's something deeper going on. So the biggest debate that centers around these particular passages have to do with the Greek words that are used by Paul in the list. For example, in 1 Corinthians, the phrase men who practice homosexuality is two Greek words. In 1 Timothy, it's one. So once again, translated the same, different words. What are those two words? The first word is malakoi. 
It is rendered effeminate in the King James Version and the NASB. It is rendered male prostitute in the NIV. And the second word is arsenicatai, rendered abusers of themselves with mankind in King James, homosexual in the NAS, and homosexual offender in NIV. So what do they mean? Okay, in classical Greek, that is not the Greek of the Bible, in classical Greek, far before that, Malakos means boys and men who allow themselves to be used homosexually and are the passive partner in a homosexual intercourse. Yes, it also means effeminate. Likewise, in classical Greek, arsenikotai refers to the active partner in the homosexual intercourse. So what's the confusion? Well, classical Greek and biblical Greek aren't the same, so that allows debate. What are we talking about? For some, they argue that Paul isn't talking about regular homosexuality at all, but as a matter of fact, talking about cultic prostitution, which is where that people would go and they would worship their god or goddess in conjunction with a person that was the same sex or gender as their god. So for example, if you worshiped a pagan god, then you would have sex with a male. If you worshiped a pagan goddess, you would have sex with a female. So you needed to have male and female prostitutes in order to handle this in a pagan proper way because not all men were comfortable having sex with another man. Many of those boy prostitutes would dress up as women, so it would lower the inhibitions. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on. Obviously, we can't get into all of it. So. In those passages, what was Paul talking about? Well, it's complicated. Was he referring specifically to homosexuality? Was he referring to cultic prostitution? Ah, it's tough, huh? Let's go to the last passage. Romans 1, the most significant passage for our study. Romans 1, 24 through 32. We're going to read all the way through 32. Therefore, in talking about the fall of mankind, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, because they traded out God and did things their own way, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. That is the only reference in the Bible to lesbianism. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done." They were all filled with manners of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Hmm. The most important thing about this passage is it highlights 
the heart of God and the problem in mankind. In my estimation, this is the only relatively clear passage that we can study because of the problems I've mentioned before. It is describing what God does and does not like. What's wrong with the world? How did we get here? Why wrath is coming? The answer is rejection of God. We rejected God and then we're just left to us. And when we're left to us, bad things happen. That's what it means. It's talking about twisted creation. Whether you go through the lists or you go through the Romans passage, here's what I find interesting. Notice the focus on activity being condemned, while the attractions and passions are the result of a bigger issue that God is addressing through Christ on the cross. We're not done. You see, there is a view that is growing in popularity, and it would be considered a gay theological view. So I want to explain for a moment what the gay theologians and affirming leaders think is missing from what I'm about to say. And here's the thing. Really smart, really good-hearted people have these views. You do not just get to dismiss it because it doesn't go along with what you always thought. You need to give serious consideration, and you got to come up with your own thoughts on this, right? I've always taught you as your pastor, what do I teach you? To be critical thinkers, to think for yourself. I'm not here to give dogmatic statements and tell you everything to believe. That's not my role. That's a Holy Spirit's role. But I think it is important to take this seriously. Now, here's the, uh, the seven examples of gay theology arguments, but I need to put in a caveat. I do not hold a gay theological view. What I'm about to share with you actually don't hold this view. Um, does that mean that I dishonor it? Uh, no, no. I think that a lot of hard work has been put into it. I do not believe it is biblically sound. And because it's not biblically sound, I cannot adhere to it. So I'm going to give you an argument that I myself do not hold, okay? Uh, here's what they think that I would be missing or someone that has a view like me. Number one, that it's an entire misreading of the Sodom and Gomorrah, Levite and concubine stories, that actually the words that are used in there, that they were not destroyed because of homosexuality, they were destroyed because of hospitality issues and rape. Now, I'm going to tell you in my estimation, homosexuality was an evidence of depravity for what they were destroyed for. I don't think it has anything to do with, home, uh, with hospitality. I think that's a stretch. I don't think that that, I'm not buying that. Um, but I understand their argument. Number two, that they said that most of what we read in the Bible is based on ignorant ancient views of gender and conception. So, for example, in the ancient world, they believed that only men were responsible for babies, right? Which is they didn't believe that the women brought anything to the table, that the man brought everything to the table. And so, therefore, homosexuality was bypassing that and it was ruining the whole plan of filling the world and the whole plan of conceiving. So it was wrong only insofar as they were saying, well, it's ruining having more kids, but of what if having more kids isn't the problem? That, that's the argument. The other thing is the social issue is that back then there was an argument against homosexuality mostly because of social class, which was 
Remember, you can have sex if you're a higher class with a lower classman, but the person that's lower classman gets busted for it, not the upper classman. That was the social order stuff I was talking to you about last week. Number three, their argument would be that it is cultic pagan prostitution that's a problem, not loving committed homosexual relationships. Now, I think cultic prostitution is part of it, and I think those lists were more leaning into cultic prostitution, quite frankly. So I'm going to give them some points there, right? Because, yeah, they brought up some beautiful points that we need to pay attention to. I just don't fully agree that it has nothing to do with it. Number four, that, that I would be defining words wrong. Paul could have used specific words for regular homosexuality in the list. Greek had five of them, but he used none of them. He used other words. Why? Because he was trying to make a different point. Okay. However, I still don't think that changes the final resolution. Number five, the argument would be invert versus pervert. And that is a gay theological argument is that you need to be true to who you are. If you are born gay, then gay is right for you. To try to be straight is a violation of God's order. It's not about whether or not you're gay or straight. It's a matter of whether or not you are who God built you to be. Number six is the eunuch argument that although the LGBTQ population is smaller, so is the eunuch population, but God had a special class of people. If you remember, there was a passage that said some eunuchs are made, what? God made them, some are made by the hands of men, and some choose to do so for the ministry. In other words, yeah, they had their testicles crushed. They weren't able to conceive either. They had to operate in their own way. Many people believe that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were all eunuchs. So why not have a protected class living out God's intention for them, for they were created by God that way? And then finally, seven, love versus lust. That they're saying, listen, lust is never the right motivation. Love is the right motivation. Those are two different things. So if love is involved, that changes the game. Okay, we don't have time to get into more of it, right? There, there's, there's many other arguments. What I'm trying to explain to you is that I'm not the corner market on truth. I'm not the one that knows everything. There are brilliant people that have a lot of different opinions and you have to walk through with respect and humility. That's what I'm trying to say. Now, in my life, I do not feel that they're sufficient to change my ultimate view. All right, so let's clarify something while we're moving on, because I'm gonna get into God's created intent, but I wanna clarify what type of LGBTQ lifestyle we're focusing on, right? We gotta get on the same page. Here's who I'm referring to when I talk about someone that is living an LGBTQ lifestyle. Here's what I mean. Kind-hearted, desirous of love, desirous of connection, faithful, homosexual lifestyle. Because by far, the vast majority of my friends and family members and people I care about in the LGBTQ world, this describes them. I'll go further to say this. The way that you would see them, they're good neighbors, they're tax-paying citizens, and they're all around amazing people. Here's what I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about your college frat people. I'm not talking about what? The whole, I'm wild and crazy and sex crazed and unhealthy and multiple sex partners and 
People keep trying to bring that up. I'm just gonna tell you right now, I don't think that we would approve what goes on in the college campuses heterosexually any more than we would do homosexual, right? That's unhealthy no matter how you look at it. That's not what I'm talking about. When I refer to an LGBTQ lifestyle, I'm talking about people that wanna be loved, people that want to be kind, people that wanna do everything right. The only distinction is their sexual orientation. So let's just make sure we're all on the same page. All right, let's move back into our study. Let's talk about God's created intent. Uh, the Bible is not silent about how mankind was created, right? It speaks about mankind's purpose, meaning, value, and identity. It does not tell us everything we want to know, but it tells us a lot. So let's go through the creation story. Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us, that's the Trinity, make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image, whatever that means. In the image of God, he created him, meaning mankind, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Goes on to recap the Genesis 1 is more of a Hebrew poem. They then go back in chapter 2 and rehash it again, getting a bit more detailed. So in Genesis 2, 7, it goes like this. Then Yahweh God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Verse 18, then, the, then Yahweh God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. But for Adam, there was no there was not found a helper fit for him, verse 21. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that Yahweh God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Okay. First point, biblical gender, male and female is a real thing. Male and female is a real thing. I understand that that's, for some in this room, that feels very restrictive and very harsh, but I believe solidly in gender. I believe that we are unique. I believe that we are distinct. How we are distinct, I think is up for debate. <laughs> Quite frankly, I think that that gets super complicated. I went through in my studies and tried to figure out what is inherently male and what is inherently female and pretty much went insane. So I would love to tell you I have the answer to that one. I simply do not. We will be dealing with that primarily in next week's lesson about what gender roles are. But here's the thing. Gender is constructed by God. It is not a mankind construction. And gender was revealed in male and female, made in God's image. Whatever that means, it means it's valuable. So we know we can't throw out gender. We know we cannot throw out role because it is God-inspired, and it says something about God. What does it say? I think that's where we can spend the majority of our time, right? Trying to sort it out. Now, I will tell you this, anything that we see today that is different than that story is called a distortion. So, homosexuality is a distortion of God's intention, but we're all distorted in some way. 
right? I don't see any of us looking anything like Adam and Eve. I can tell you that. So here, let me say a couple statements. Bridgeway only has broken people. That's like the only people that fill this place, right? So if we're going to say, well, what about broken people? Ah, that's all we got. We are all breakdowns of the perfect ideal. We are all deviations. Let me give you an example. Uh, our body design. Am I really what Adam was like? Come on, that's embarrassing, right? <laughs> like if Adam saw me, he's kind of like, yeah, so about that, <laughs> right? Probably not. Um, but I want to talk about the whole traditional gender idea. Let's say, for example, Adam was supposed to be the protector. Well, it would be wonderful if all men were the strong protectors. They just simply are not. Uh, are women the nurturers? Well, I'll tell you right now, I know a significant amount of women that nurturing is not natural. However, we don't then reclassify and say, no, women are not nurturers because quite frankly, they're the only ones with a womb. The, the little guys come through them and they're nursed at their breasts. So we have to have some understanding of why did God create the body like that? And ultimately it lends to initially there was a perfect ideal. And in that perfect ideal, we had a super awesome mom and a super awesome dad. Now we just don't have those clean cut lines anymore. Now we got messy. Are we now compensating for that? Do we now need to say some nurturing dads need to step up? Yeah, we do. Are we saying now that some moms need to step in and be a bit more protective? Do we believe that women can be protective and men can be nurturing? Yes, we do. Absolutely. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. So let's dive into the sexual ethics of scripture, right? The Bible has a lot to say about sexuality. One thing is abundantly clear. Mankind is not allowed to do whatever they want to do, okay? That much we do know. It has always been about the heart, right? Matthew 15, 18. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anybody. What's, what's God's point? Jesus was simply highlighting this. The external stuff doesn't matter as much as the internal stuff. We've got to be focused on our relationship with God internally and let him work from the inside out. We tend to try to morph everything outside and leave the inside untouched. Do you realize you can look perfect on the outside and have a destroyed heart? You can have a black soul and look beautiful in church. We have to work from the inside out. That's how Jesus works. But there's always been restrictions on sexuality. For example, adultery has always been forbidden. What's adultery? It's having sex with someone that's not your spouse or you're having sex with them and they have a spouse and you ain't it. That's adultery. Bestiality has always been forbidden. That's having sex with animals. Incest has always been forbidden. That is sex between family members. Fornication or sexual immorality, meaning anyone having sex that's not married, has always been forbidden. So if you have these forbidding things, is that because God doesn't love us or is it because he does? Every parent knows that true love is not found in affirming everything about their child or every choice they make, right? True love means affirming the best for their kiddos. I think that's what God's after. So let's go through some of the ethical 
sexual passages. Here we go, Romans 13, 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What's my point in this? We need to be in charge, not our desires. I'm gonna tell you right now, we as a church, fail, right? Why? We're really not doing great at this. Y'all, we are pushed back and forth by our feelings and our desires and our drives and everything. Man, the majority of us are addicted to something, right? But we have to remember, God built us that we would drive the ship, not that the ship would drive us. Matthew 5, 27, you have heard Jesus said that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. What's the point? Lust is a big issue for God because it's mental activity. But let me clarify something. Once again, remember I taught, I taught you last week that there's a significant difference between same-sex attraction and homosexual sexual activity. What I told you was same-sex attraction has no condemnation. Remember I told you that? I told you that I believe it is biblically firm that an attraction or a desire of any sort does not grab condemnation. God's not mad at you for how you feel. God is not mad at you for what you think. Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, but what? Was yet without sin. Temptation and sin are not the same thing. There's accountability and responsibility on behavior and activity, but not in how you feel. So, but let me clarify something. So here's the pathway. When it comes to sexual attraction, it starts out with awareness. That's the whole head snap, right? Somebody walks by and you go, dang, right? That's called awareness. And you are allowed to go, man, that person is hot. You're allowed to do that. Because the temptation and attraction kicks in, and you're allowed to go, whoa, now all of a sudden your engine starts revving, right? Okay, so far we don't have condemnation. When you shift over and say, and now I'm going to allow all of that to consume me, I'm now going to plan out in my head what this will be, and you lock in. The word lust in the Bible means to consume. It means to grab and take a hold of. It's not saying it's mere attraction. Lust is when things start going down a road because you're letting that drive the car. That's where accountability comes in. After that becomes sexual activity. So it goes from awareness to temptation and attraction to lust to sexual activity. They are not all the same thing. There is no condemnation for same-sex attraction. There's accountability for lust being a mental activity. Does that make sense? And there's accountability for sexual activity. All right, here we go. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 9. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman have her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. That means sex 
and likewise the wife to her husband. Verse 5, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come back together sexually again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not as a command, I say this, Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am, which means single, not having sex at all, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay, I don't have time to get all into that. I'll get all preachy and we'll have a whole sermon here. But I just want to say this. The only proper expression of sexuality is in a man-woman married environment. That's what it says. Gender matters. Marriage matters. Why? Sexual ethics. It says it pretty clearly there. But what does that mean for the rest of us? What does it mean for us that are unmarried? What does it mean for us that are single? What does it mean for us that are same-sex attracted? What does it mean? It keeps saying, yeah, that's great for all of you. you got, it's better to marry than burn with passion. But what if marriage isn't an option for you and you burn with passion? What are you supposed to do? Anybody letting that stuff soak into your heart? Challenging. Pick it up in Galatians 5.19. Now the works of the flesh, that means of this world, are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the key, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit... That which emanates out from a spirit-controlled life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Here's the key. Too many of us look at that with a self-condemnation and we say that's a to-do list, that's a check-off list, and I'm doing terrible. I'm not as patient as I should be. I'm not that. Here's what it says. That's not a list of to-dos to work harder on. Those are a list of if the Holy Spirit has full control, this is what becomes natural to you. Peace just comes. You didn't try hard to be peaceful. So that's why we must always work from the inside out. Too many of us, once again, are trying behavior modification behavior modification it just doesn't work. It has to be spirit modification. And then what does he change in us? Sometimes he does not change what we'd like him to change. That we will talk about in a little bit. Let's pick it up in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who don't know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger of all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. What does it mean? Self-control is super important to God. Am I good at it? Not really. Is it still important? Yeah. And so once again, the sexual ethics are that we don't get to do whatever 
is natural to us. We have to submit and surrender whatever we have. Doesn't matter if it's heterosexual, doesn't matter if it's homosexual. It's always been about the heart. One of my most troubling things that I see happen in the world today is that we have people condemning behavior and there's no talk of the heart. Doesn't even make sense to me that someone would come in and they would say, oh, your behavior is making you go to hell. That's not what makes you go to hell. We'll talk about it. Full, full counsel of God. Here we go. Full counsel of God. If we're going to examine, you can't just examine eight passages or ten passages and know the full counsel of God. We haven't even studied the love passages, lust passages, wives and husbands passages, heterosexual passages, temptation passages, nature versus spirit, submitting to the Lord, and it goes on and on and on. Please do not take a simplistic view of Scripture and then start making opinions. It's complicated, yeah? But here's a summary. Here is, in my opinion, a balanced biblical view of homosexuality. After everything else is considered, I need you to hear me on this closely. Although the Bible wasn't written as a manual to answer every question every generation has directly, it does provide a foundation for each generation to make wise, educated determinations about what God desires for his people. And this is the most important thing I need you to hear me say. While very few issues are abundantly clear in Scripture, most can be resolved as relatively clear. What does relatively clear mean? It means it's about as clear as everything else we can figure out. For example, the Trinity, relatively clear, right? Because if people are arguing against it and they can argue against it, it's relatively clear. Do you believe in the Trinity? It's a foundation for our church. It's relatively clear to me. All right. So let's go through these. In my estimation, the Bible is relatively clear that homosexual sexual activity is sexual immorality and it's forbidden by God just as sexual immorality of any type is. Number two, homosexuality is not God's best for his people. Number three, homosexual sexual activity, although a serious sin, is not a more grievous sin than any other sin. Number five, there's no condemnation for same-sex attraction. There's no condemnation for gender dysphoria. There's only accountability and responsibility for what we do with it. Next, we are to be the masters of our passions, not the other way around. Next, our identity is to be found in Christ alone. Whatever you say about your identity, it must be founded in Jesus. Next, God loves those who struggle with same-sex attraction. They are not second-class citizens in the house of God. Next, God has hope and freedom for all of us, even if we still carry the cross of brokenness and suffering. Next, homosexuality is not the most important thing about us. Falling in love with the Lord is. If you only were able to focus on one thing, your sexuality isn't even close to being on the top of the list. Your love with Jesus is. 
If we can only work on one issue, I don't even need to have a conversation about your sexuality. That's way down the road. What I need to talk to you about is whether or not you love Jesus. That's the key. And finally, the Holy Spirit is the one in charge of judging and changing lives. He's the primary member of the Godhead, loving us, working with us daily to transform us into the image of Jesus. All right, so let's turn the corner as we start to land this plane, yeah? How does God deal with brokenness and how does he deal with sin? Everybody wants to know the question, oh, is homosexuality a sin? Same-sex attraction isn't, but lust and homosexual sexual activity is. But how does God define sin? See, everyone loves to throw out that term. Do you even know what you're talking about? Everyone's a sinner. The Bible uses two definitions for sin. A, missing the mark of God's perfection. Anything less than perfect, sin. There you go. You got a cough. Sorry, that's sin. Letter B, trespass of a law of God. It means that you knew it was wrong and then you walked over the line. Understand there's two different definitions. So how God defines sin is in 1 John 5, 17, all wrongdoing is sin. Anything contrary to the nature of God's own nature and his will, that's sin. There you go. So anything that's fallen from the ideal. It is not about who it hurts. You understand? It's the idea that a lot of times we will look at things and we'll say, well, that's wrong. And you go, well, why do you think it's wrong? Well, that hurts someone. That's not what makes something right or wrong. It's God's nature or not God's nature. And God's view does not change with society's view. It is what it is. The problem is, is that usually we don't even know what God's will is. We haven't even looked at it deeply. Let me repeat, everyone is a sinner. Romans 3.23, there's no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So where anyone would have a high horse, I don't understand. Where anyone would come in arrogant, I don't understand. It doesn't make sense to me. We only got one kind of human being, and that's us. Bottom line, here's the problem, in my opinion as a pastor. People look at these things, and then they say ignorant phrases like this. Uh, homosexuals can't be saved, can't be Christian, can't go to heaven. How in the world is that true? Have you not read the Bible? Here's what I mean. How's a person saved? Think about it that way. On what basis is someone saved? Did you get saved on your good works? Did you get saved on your righteousness? No, of course you didn't. Ephesians 2.9, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works that no one gets to brag about it, right? So whatever you're gonna say how you got saved, it had very little to do with you, right? So why would someone dare say that someone can't be saved? How, why would you even say that? That's not correct. Is someone in need of a rescuer? Boom, we're in. That's awesome. That's what Jesus does. He rescues sinners. Uh, how do you get to heaven? Is it trusting in Christ or trusting in your ability to be good? I think it's trusting in Christ, yeah? Uh, let's do this. What's a disciple of Christ? Because there was a bunch of disciples with Jesus. Some of them fell away even. But what is a disciple of Christ? It means a broken human follower of Jesus. It's the only kind of disciples. What's a Christian? 
It's supposed to be a mimic of Jesus in every way. That's what it's supposed to be, but not practically. Practically, it's a broken person in process being perfected by the Holy Spirit. If you think that Christians have arrived, you must not be one. Are we not all in process? We are. Once again, some people falsely think this. Well, pastor, if you're going to start teaching grace, then nobody's going to change their behavior. <laughs> Come on. If fear is your motivation for good behavior, you haven't even done Christianity right. What's the motivation for good behavior? Loving your Lord. That's it. You cannot be motivated by fear. You can't be motivated and scared into heaven. That's not how this works, you guys. The only way is to realize what God has done and fall in love with him. That's what's more important. And here's the other thought. One person determining another person's eternal destiny is absurd. What do you know about eternity? What, you're going to judge whether or not I'm saved? What, you think that just because I'm a pastor and I do this stuff for a living that somehow I'm more saved than somebody else? You have no idea. I stand or fall before my own father in heaven, right? Oh, well, I don't. he's saved for sure. You don't know that. You don't even know about you. Paul said, you got to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's talking about, man, I don't, he said, I don't even judge myself. Y'all, we're entirely dependent on Jesus. Amen? And the last thought on that is the absurdity of sinners ordering sin by importance. <laughs> Have you guys all realized how dumb that is? Well, this sin's super bad. What? Oh, you mean the one you don't struggle with? Come on. We can't do that. However, I will address this. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says that sexual sin is different than other sins. Let's read that together. 1 Corinthians 6, 12, all things are lawful for me, Paul says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who's joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's a popular one, right? So how is sexual sin different? It means it's dealing with deep down stuff that we don't know what we're messing with. That's what it means. Does it mean that it's more important sins or does it mean that it's different? It means it's different. There's something going on and we're not quite sure how sexuality and social and all these connections, we don't know how we're made, we don't know how we work. So we have to travel very gently, right? You gotta be very careful on what you're doing with the inside of you. That is a big deal. So how does God work with brokenness and sin? Here we go, let's close this stuff out. God only works with broken people. All of us are in process with our own stuff. 
It is arrogant and ignorant to think that since our sins are culturally acceptable, that somehow God's grading on a curve. He's not. There is a story in the Bible about how God does deal with sin. Have you ever read the story of the woman caught in adultery? That's in... It's a powerful passage. We're going to talk about it more in week four. So a better question is this, in my estimation, is LGBTQ God's intention or God's best for me? Stop looking at everybody else. Is it God's best for you? Is it God's best for me? You see, there's a big difference between God is love and love is God. Love is not God. God is love. But this is something I need you to drink in. If you are not LGBTQ or do not struggle with same-sex attraction, there's something I need you to hear me say. The number one fear from the community that does struggle is not the sex part. Oh, I'm never going to be able to have sex. It's I'm never going to be loved. I'm never going to have a life partner. I'm never going to have somebody that truly knows me. I'm never going to have someone walk with me. We've got to stop putting everything back into a sexual category. A lot of the hurt is fear of loneliness. Why is that such a big deal to me? Because there are some of us that think that it's all about truth, arriving at truth, arriving at truth, arriving at truth, and you forget people's lives. What did you just read? And, and we all have crosses to bear. I've had a long time dealing with problems of having a chemical imbalance and having mental health issues. I've dealt with that a long time, and God hasn't healed me yet. You know what? There's some of us that are handicapped. We were born handicapped. We may well die handicapped. We have crosses to bear. What I'm trying to have you consider is that when we start talking about same-sex attraction, I need you to understand the weight of that cross. And don't take it lightly. Don't take it flippantly. Don't take it as if, well, that's not my problem. You're a Christian. It is your problem because someone else is hurting. And if they feel lonely, it is our problem. You see, I want this phrase to burn into your mind as we close. At least compassion. Whatever you believe, wherever you stand on scripture views, wherever you determine your view to be, at least compassion. There is no room for anything else. There is only room for dialogue. There is only room for how can I help you? How can I love on you? How can I care for you? How can I pour out my heart with you? How can I lift you up when you're down? How can I be in your pain? How can I walk with you? At least compassion. But I need you to know this. God's not done with any of us yet. God is a rescuer. God is a deliverer. The Father's heart is to care for his children. The Holy Spirit is called the Comforter. Jesus Christ is called the Prince of Peace. Wow. God's got more for us. He ain't done yet. Would you welcome our testimony for this evening, the director of his ministry, a division of the Restored Hope Network, Pastor Carl Conley. Thank you.
What a blessing it is to be here. Uh, I really appreciate Pastor Lance and the leadership here at Bridgeway willing to discuss these kinds of things. These are important issues, particularly today. And uh, it's really, the culture says one thing. We keep hearing it. That's what our kids are hearing. We need to hear what God says. And that is so important. Can we pray, please? Father, I just thank you so much for the opportunity to just be here with these brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would just um, use this time, use me to, to share not only my story, but what it is you're doing, Lord. May it not be about me, really, ultimately about you. May this glorify you, Father. Lord, use us to raise yourself up. Thank you for this opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, let me tell you a little bit about my story. I started off with a grand entrance at uh, three months premature. I was two pounds, three ounces. And um, that was back in the 50s, wasn't supposed to even live. But the Lord had different plans. Uh, I was in the hospital for two months, the incubator most of that time. My parents took me home, and I heard all the stories about hovering over me in the bassinet and making sure I was breathing and I wasn't having any problems. So from the very beginning, I was treated like a fragile child. Then a year later, my brother was born, and uh, he was bouncing baby boy full term. And, uh, and we were actually, in a lot of ways, we were raised as twins. My mother really raised us uh, as twins. Um, when I was three years old, two things happened. One, my year younger brother reached my height and, and then just kept getting taller. He's six foot five today. <clears throat> and um, so as, as long as I can remember, my brother was always taller than me. And that really, I think, played a real self-image issue, that I was the, the older brother and yet I was a little guy. Again, that, that fragile not really uh, strong and, and hardy like my brother. Also at three, I had another had trauma. I actually uh, was tripped and fell and hit the corner of a coffee table and lost an eye. And of course, that was really difficult for my parents. Actually, for me, I've, I don't know anything other, different than that. And so that's not been a problem for me. However, my parents were always worried and they would hover over me. And it's that, that fragile child that just, that, that kept going. And I remember at a 4th of July party, block party, my dad took out these World War II aviator goggles and they were all scratched up and everything, but he put these on me and they just weighed on my face. I remember that. And I just remember standing around. He didn't want fireworks or anything to damage my good eye. And I just remember standing there just looking around. I couldn't do anything. And I was watching the kids running around playing and I really couldn't do that with this accoutrement that I had on my head. And I just remembered feeling different, feeling like I didn't belong. <clears throat> the other thing was my dad, uh, he was World War II, Battle of the Bulge, grew up in New York City. Uh, he was a street rat. He, uh, he goes from subway station to subway station, through the subways, and uh, had all kinds of stories about what it was like there. He, he, just, he was a tough guy. He was a bartender, and he would tell about guys that he would have to kick out and punch out and stuff like that. And it's like, I could never be like this. How, how could I ever be like my dad? I mean, he's like superhuman. 
But I had good Christian influences in my, my family. My, my dad, although he wasn't a Christian, my mother was. She wasn't walking closely with the Lord, but she always would pray with us at night and answer our questions about who Jesus was. It wasn't until fifth grade that she actually was convicted. And, and we went and started attending church. And that was, that was great to have a church, church home where we were loved. It felt like a family to us <clears throat> and really learned the Bible. <clears throat> Next door to us was my grandmother, who was a wonderful, godly woman. And Jesus was her best friend. <clears throat> and I remember hearing her talk about Jesus and reading us Bible stories. And I've, I always thought, if Jesus is my grandmother's best friend, I want him to be mine too. So from a little guy, I had this childlike faith in Christ. And that was a faith that just grew through the years. And so as a child, I really grew up with a lot of bondage. The bondage of fear. The bondage of um, also perceived rejection. But actually what happened one time, I was probably about nine, maybe 10, we were sitting at the dinner table and my father made the statement that he loved my brother more than he loved me. And my mother said, oh, you don't mean that, Joe. And, my, and I, was, I remember thinking, please say you didn't mean it. Please say you didn't mean it. And he said, yeah, I do. Well, I think, looking back, I think he really did love me. But what he was trying to do was provoke me into drawing, drawing closer to him. But that's not how I received it. I received it as a total rejection. <clears throat> and I made what is called an inner vow at that time. And I didn't realize that until later. But the inner vow was, I'm never going to allow you to hurt me again. I am never going to get close enough to you that you can hurt me. And so I put up an emotional barrier. Now, did I still want my dad's love and affection and attention? I absolutely did but I wasn't gonna put myself out there. I wasn't gonna push into that. And that was so wounding for me. That inner vow was like quicksand to me. And I just, it just drew me down and down and down deeper and deeper. Um, these, I believe, are some of the antecedents to same-sex attraction that I developed as I grew up, that, that uh, sprang up in my life. It's not what I wanted. I didn't want anything to do with that. I knew it was a sin. And I said, um, what am I going to do? I just didn't say anything. I went to college. It was a time when I was growing spiritually. I got involved in campus ministry. I was growing by leaps and bounds spiritually. But at the same time, I was having an inner struggle that I could not share with anyone. At least I didn't feel I could. I was afraid that if I shared that with anyone, who knows what would happen? The fear, the fear gripped me. That was part of the bondage. <clears throat> Probably one of the worst things that ever happened to me. One of the, it was a class on campus that was the most popular class. It was called Human Sexuality. I took that class. And it was really pornography uh, that was being taught, the way it was being taught. And when they talked, when he, the professor talked about homosexuality, it was like a bomb went off in my head. And it, and it was something, it just became uh, obsessive to me. And that everything that I did, everything I saw, it was like colored through this lens, this homosexual lens. And yet I couldn't talk. I would go to a secular counselor and I say, I don't 
I, I don't think this is right. I don't, uh, this is, I don't want it. And they became theologians and were telling me, well, God made you this way and you just need to accept it. And I didn't know what to do. So for, for the, throughout my college career for four years, I struggled with it silently. It was after I graduated there that I finally, I finally listened to the Lord. And I found a church, south part of Sacramento, where someplace I never went. I went there and I met with a pastor. And I, I just laid it all on, out on the table. I just told him everything that I had been feeling, some of the bad decisions that I had made. And, uh, and I was just waiting for him to throw me out. But God sent me to that particular man, and, he, and God gave him the words I needed to hear. All of a sudden, I realized that I wasn't worthy, I wasn't trash, that God loved me because he showed me God's love. I was able to hear truth, and I could realize now that I can actually share with other believers because they can accept me. Now, not, not everybody was ready to hear something like this from me, but, but the Lord drew me to people that I could share it with. And that's where so much of the healing came from, those relationships and, and just hearing truth. You know, today I'm at a place where I can praise God for struggles and temptations because I know that draws me to him. I don't have to, if there's a temptation, I don't have to give in to that. That's just a reminder. I need to keep my eyes on Christ. And that's what's most important. The Lord blessed me with uh, my wife. Uh, we've been married for 42 years. And uh, we've got four kids. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Um, and he gave me a seed of a calling for ministry. And I didn't know what that was going to be like, but he was pushing us to a church that he wanted. We were looking for a church, went to this church one, uh, one Sunday. I didn't even want, there was, I had a bunch of reasons I didn't want to go to that church. We ended up there and the pastor got up and said, and this is in the 80s. He said, you know, God made us to be salt and light in this world and we are letting them down. We need to be reaching out to the alcoholics, to the drug abusers, to the homosexuals and to the prostitutes. That's the first time I'd ever heard the word homosexual used in church that doesn't have the abomination word attached to it. And all of a sudden, here's this message of redemption that was coming from, from the pastor. And I had to make a, to, to make a set up a meeting with him. And I shared my testimony. I shared about ministry that God had put in my heart. I didn't want anyone else to go for years and years uh, quietly by themselves without having some place that they know they could go that was safe and where they could, um, they could learn truth. It was really interesting. I later found out that the first pastor, Pastor Art Bruss, that I went and spoke to in South Sacramento, that was the mother church of this church up in the North area. So they were the one, they put out, took out a loan to open that church, to get that church started. So God is really neat the way he works his network. So we were able to start a ministry, it's called His Ministries. And uh, that ministry started in 1990, and it still goes today. What I never expected is that uh, 10 years uh, after we started the ministry there at the church, uh, the leaders invited me, called me to be executive pastor at that church, and I served there for 15 years 
as executive pastor. I never thought that I would be able to do something like that because I, I thought I had been disqualified. That, that was in my mind. But God is the one who redeems, and God is the one who, who makes us right. Uh, we also have a ministry called Living Waters, and this is a ministry... It's, it was written for people who experience um, both sexual and relational brokenness. And it's a deep um, discipleship kind of a ministry. But it really is a, a, it's a, a good for anyone that wants to come in and even be equipped to help others in, in discipleship. It all centers around the cross. There's reading, there's teaching. There's a small group discussion, but the small group actually isn't discussion. What it is is we come around the cross. We go, Lord, now that we've heard this and now that we have read this, what is it you're saying to me? And we do business at the cross. It's a 23-week program. It's just incredible. So God has taken what was to me a curse at one point and used it to really give me a ministry that has been just given me life and uh, given, been a blessing to so many others. I want to just share uh, a few websites with you. Uh, if you want to get a hold of me or if you want to hear more about His Ministries or Living Waters, our website is hisonline.org. If you want to, uh, some more resources or even finding ministries uh, that are across the country, this is a networking organization called RestoredHopeNetwork.org. Restored Hope Network, they network ministries like his ministries. Another one, if you want to read more uh, testimonies, this is a website with over 50 testimonies of people who have been transformed and who have come out of homosexuality and gender confusion. It's called Changed Movement, Changed Past Tense, Changed Movement, Com. It's a great website that you can see what God's doing in many lives. And one more, this is a ministry that God has just raised up, and I am so excited about it because as young people, and some of them have only been <clears throat> out of the lifestyle for two or three years, and yet God gave them this desire for a freedom march. And they started, they had a freedom march in, in uh, Washington, D.C. They marched through the town, then stopped, and then people shared testimonies to whoever wanted to hear. That was what God called them to do. Then they did it in L.A., and now they're planning it in Minnesota this year, and, and Orlando, and someplace else. But you can go online, and you can see that. That's freedomtomarch.com. It's amazing. I am so excited. I'm looking forward to meeting these folks this, uh, this coming year. So, in short... Your ministry to people who are struggling with, with same-sex attraction or who are even trapped in the lifestyle. Love them. It's going to be relationship that's going to draw them out because of your love. It's also going to be relationship that's going to bring healing into their, into their lives. Oh, we often say that homosexuality is not a sexual problem. It's a relational problem. And if you can, if you can have a healthy relationship, that will be a blessing to that person and to you. Uh, I am, my heart is now to equip men and women to mentor people who, who are looking for 
biblical uh, biblical uh, life in there uh, and being able to deal with that unwanted same-sex attraction. And I encourage you not to be, uh, not to hesitate to step into someone's life and be a mentor. Men with men, women with women. I just want to close with this verse. This was an important verse to me. And it's also a verse for so many other men and women today. Joel 2.25 says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. I spent four years in a desert. I spent four years and the locusts were eating away at my soul. And the Lord said, I'm going to take you out of there and I'm going to use you for my glory. Thank you, Lord. Thank you very much for, your, for listening. Well, you just got a lot of information in a short amount of time. But just think about these last two sessions of a deep walkthrough of all the passages in Scripture and understanding them, as well as what we looked at last week of the paradigms that we have to understand in order to approach this. Because that sets us up and we're only halfway through. And so there are so many layers to this, and we're going to move into that time where we're going to get ready to talk and discuss these at our tables. And as we talked about last week, we're entering into another aspect of the learning and processing of the material. And that means that your learning is still happening, but you're learning from one another. And like always, we just want to remind you that there's ground rules that we talked about last week that both Pastor Lance and I talked about how to talk to one another and how to learn in a healthy way with each other. And so those ground rules are on every table. And so it's good to just take a look at those again and be reminded of not monologuing and being the only person talking, of having a convicted civility and of listening to one another within that. So make sure to take a glance at those or facilitators, you can walk everybody through those. And then you're gonna have two questions again. And then your facilitators have a third question if you are just an overachieving table and you figure out everything from the first two questions. So we're gonna put the two questions up on screen but the two questions you're going to talk about tonight is number one, which biblical points are the most eye-opening and informative for the issues of homosexual sexual activity and same-sex attraction? And then question number two is what do the passages that we covered tonight or others that we did not have time to go into tell us about how God deals with our brokenness? So we want you to focus on processing those two questions. And then there's a third one that your facilitators can bring up if you have time. So let's go ahead and launch you into those conversations and we'll check back with you in about 35 minutes or so.